peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of sound. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. One of my favorite things about trying to perceive reality is the maddening feeling of mistaking something for its opposite. Allow me to explain. Have you ever noticed that genius and insanity can look shockingly similar? Savants and psychos often have a lot in common. Sometimes I'll be listening to an eccentric person speak and... I can choose to alternate between hearing them through the psycho filter or through the savant filter. That is, I proactively choose which way to try and interpret their ramblings, either psycho or savant. With the psycho filter on, it seems clear that person is just raving mad. They're making no sense, and their brain is just wired wrong. Then, I can switch to the savant filter and hear those same ramblings as enlightened, higher thinking above what I'm naturally capable. Their brain is just wired in a special way that a rube like me could only struggle to understand. I also just finished watching season two of The Boys, which is purely conceived as everything being the opposite of what it seems. The seedy criminals are the good guys, and the literal superheroes are viciously evil. Obviously, that's an extreme, but... How sure are you that your world is so different? How confident are you in your perceptions? Are you sure you can always sort out the insane from the intelligent? Can you root out the pure from the profane? Or perhaps that savant you have idolized has in fact always been a psycho. Visionaries and Prisoners Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? Intimations of Immortality My lawyer, Richard Sanchez, was unaware of the contents of this document when I delivered it to him on the 25th of July in the year 2010, along with the stipulation it be read in conjunction with my will. This document was compiled in order to set the record straight concerning the Halbertson kidnapping case. My name is Anthony Drexler. After serving 32 years on a metropolitan police force, I retired and went into business as a private detective. The contacts I made during my time as a police officer were indispensable in my quest to find the missing Halbertson child. When the crime occurred on August 31st, 2005, It wasn't long before everyone in the country knew about the Halbertson kidnapping case. It was very high profile. Because of the standing of the Halbertson family in the community, the police devoted an inordinate amount of time to the case. In other words, at the risk of sounding cynical, the Halbertson family was extremely wealthy, and the city officials feared the Halbertsons would extend financial backing to opponents in the coming election if a concerted effort, or at least the appearance of one, were not made to recover the child. Despite a considerable expenditure of manpower over the course of the next three years, the case remained unsolved. At that time, 
Although the case was still active, I was contacted by a frustrated David Halbertson and offered the job of finding his child. I accepted the offer. The Halbertson child had been kidnapped at the hospital shortly after his birth. There was really only one lead to follow in the case. A nurse had noticed a well-dressed, distinguished-looking gentleman, early to mid-fifties, in the vicinity of Mrs. Halbertson's room a few minutes before the baby was discovered missing from its crib, adjacent to the slumbering Mrs. Halbertson. The nurse assisted the investigators in creating a sketch of the suspect. Additionally, the nurse was shown numerous photographs of individuals who were known to be in the business of procuring children for various reasons. The nurse was unable to identify the suspect among the photographs. On the chance the nurse was involved in the kidnapping and deliberately misleading the police by providing a false description of the kidnapper, she was subjected to a thorough investigation. Her background as well as her behavior subsequent to the kidnapping was above reproach. The Halbertson's household staff was also checked, their credentials impeccable. When I began my investigation, I knew the motive of the kidnapper would be crucial to a resolution. Since the Halbertsons were quite wealthy, it was assumed, at first, the kidnapping was motivated by greed. However, no ransom was ever demanded. It appeared the kidnapper had selected a victim at random and was unaware of the social standing of the family. This left me with two options to consider. First, the baby was procured for the netherworld of slavery, prostitution, satanic rituals, and snuff films. Second, the baby was taken for some personal need. Although the kidnapping had apparently been committed at random, the perpetrator would have quickly discovered, with the continuous barrage of media coverage, the value of the child in his possession. If the original motive of the kidnapper were to sell the child on the black market, he would certainly have changed his mind after finding out he could make a more handsome profit by ransoming the child to his parents. Since no effort was ever made to ransom the child, I was left with only one conclusion. The child had been abducted to fulfill some... personal need. If the child had been sold on the black market, it would have been virtually impossible to recover him. My chances of locating the child were greatly enhanced by the fact that the kidnapper wanted to keep the child. It is very difficult for an individual to explain the sudden appearance of a baby. It is true that someone could speak with friends and neighbors of adopting a child for a considerable time prior to the kidnapping in order to create a cover story. However, the suspect in the Halberton case was around 50 years of age, assuming he had not worn a disguise. A friend or neighbor might become suspicious of such a person adopting a newborn baby, especially if they had happened to see the police sketch of the suspect plastered across the newspapers and television screens. The upshot of all this being, the suspect had probably figured all this out in advance, in which case, he knew it would be necessary to keep the baby concealed from everyone and invent a plausible excuse to change neighborhoods and sever any relationships he may have had. This thought led naturally to another. I noted the date of the abduction, August 31st, the last day of the month, move-out day at rental properties. Starting with the rental properties nearest the hospital, I initiated the not inconsequential task of identifying every individual who moved out on August 31st, 2005. Since the suspect was a white male, I eliminated all single females and all non-Caucasians. Assuming the suspect had not worn a disguise to make him appear older than his actual age, I then eliminated all individuals under the age of 45. 
I then found it necessary to determine if the suspect was married or single. During my time on the police force, I'd been assigned to a number of cases where a person had wanted a baby and, for a variety of reasons, was unable to have one. In desperation, these people had abducted babies from other women, in a few cases even going to the extreme of performing ad hoc cesareans. Sometimes the perpetrators were married and in other cases they were single. However, in every one of the cases where the kidnappers had been married, the person responsible for physically removing the baby from its rightful mother had been the female. My experience, as well as my instinct, told me the suspect in the Halbertson case was unmarried. I then eliminated all females, not just single women, as well as married men from my suspect database. I was able to pare down the list of suspects by obtaining from the Department of Motor Vehicles, through contacts I'd cultivated while serving on the police force, photographs of each individual. I then compared the photographs with the police sketch of the suspect in the Halbertson case. In this manner, I eliminated suspects from consideration. I steadily worked my way through the rental properties immediately surrounding the hospital and incrementally increased the radius. After months of laboring on this project, I found a likely suspect. I went to the nurse who had helped prepare the official police sketch. I showed her the picture of my suspect along with a dozen other photographs of men with a similar appearance. She unhesitatingly identified my suspect as the man she'd seen outside Mrs. Halbertson's room. Now I had a name. Ronald Keith, professor at the local university with degrees in anthropology and psychiatry. In addition, Keith was more than passing familiar with the subject of human physiology and obsessed with the paranormal. Shortly after achieving tenure, he decided to take a sabbatical and it subsequently disappeared. I assumed Keith had changed identity shortly after moving out of his rented house. Disposing of his vehicle had undoubtedly been part of his identity change. Once again, I utilized the contacts I'd accumulated over the years in order to find when and where Keith had sold his vehicle. A car with the same vehicle identification number as Keith's had been purchased in a neighboring state on September 1st, the day after the Halbertson baby's abduction. I guessed that after Keith sold his car, he would immediately purchase another under an assumed name. I began visiting the automobile dealerships in the vicinity and checking their records for any sales on September 1st, 2005. After assembling a database of potential aliases, in much the same way I'd assembled the list of suspects who'd moved out of rental properties, I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles and compared each name against the associated photograph on their driver's license. Keith was now going under the alias of Lewis Carmichael. He lived in a cabin in the mountains, about 60 miles outside the city in which he'd purchased his automobile. I traveled to the cabin where I confronted Keith slash Carmichael. He admitted to kidnapping the Halbertson baby and then proceeded to explain his motive for doing so. He needed the baby for an experiment in psychic research. He theorized that all humans possess psychic abilities but the ability has become dormant with the passage of time as mankind developed tools. With each new invention, humans relied less on their inherent psychic assets to help them survive. Keith believed our psychic sense could be reawakened, but only after our other five senses had been minimized as much as possible. To demonstrate the validity of his theory, he felt he needed a newborn baby 
i.e. a representative of humanity who has experienced a minimal amount of stimulation from the traditional five senses. To this end, he kidnapped the Halbertson child, disabled his vocal cords, and placed him in a sensory deprivation tank. Keith informed me the child had occupied the tank without interruption ever since his abduction, but assured me the child was unharmed. Keith claimed unmitigated success in his efforts. I handcuffed Keith and searched the cabin. I found the Halbertson child, alive and well, in a sensory deprivation tank located in a back room. I spent the rest of the day and most of the night reading through Keith's notes. It seemed Keith had, in fact, proved his theory. By monitoring the child's brain waves and then translating those brain waves into recognizable patterns, Keith was able to project the child's mental images onto a screen. Keith had also developed a method of communicating directly with the child's brain, bypassing all of the traditional senses. Without doubt, the child was possessed of enormous psychic ability. Realizing the Halbertson boy would be an enormous asset to me, considering my line of work, I proceeded to murder Keith and conceded failure to Mr. and Mrs. Halbertson in my quest to find their child. I kept the boy in Keith's cabin where, over the years, I've fine-tuned Keith's method of communication. The boy has helped me solve a number of cases concerned with the whereabouts of wanted and missing individuals. The boy remains, to this very day, in Keith's cabin. Well, I hope Mr. Drexler also included the directions to the cabin so someone can go find that poor kid. In the meantime, We'll move on to our second story, a simple mealtime chat with an infamously vicious death row inmate. Prisoners. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Richard Lovelace, to Althea from prison. When I finally met the evil Daniel Ashburn, I was surprised by his appearance. He didn't look capable of committing the atrocities he'd been accused of perpetrating, but he did commit them. I know he was guilty because he admitted everything to me. He was short, pale, sickly, balding head. Oh, and he wore glasses. How many people wear glasses in this day and age? Maybe that was an indication right there, a sign of his true nature. Anyway, He was put in maximum security, solitary confinement. His crimes were so unspeakable they kept him completely isolated from the rest of the inmates. And I was the only one to see him from the day he was convicted to the day he was executed. I was also surprised by his manners as well. Always, please and thank you and have a nice day delivered with a smile. Still, it took me quite some time, about a week before I was able to get up the courage to question him about... about what he'd done. It was maybe a month before the execution when I asked him if he was guilty. I'd just shoved his lunch tray into the cell with him. Did you really do what they say you did? He looked at me and smiled. Absolutely, he said with a wink. I looked down at the floor and shook my head. How many... how many did you... 
I managed to mumble. I lost count, he said, obviously very proud of himself. I didn't know how to respond to that, so I said nothing. You want to know something else? He asked. Without waiting for my answer, he continued. I enjoyed every second of it. But why? They'd done nothing to you. Why not just ignore them? I asked. Oh, but they did do something to me. They'd done something to all of us. Most people are just too ignorant or lazy to realize it, he informed me. They look innocent enough, but, well, at the very least, they act as a distraction, drawing our attention away from what's important. At worst, they spread propaganda and spew filth with impunity. Then I thought I understood him. That part about spewing filth was standard fare with the religious nuts. I suggested, half-jokingly, he might be one. Me? <laughs> I'm an atheist. Have been all my life. But that set him off in a different direction. You want to talk about religious nuts? Let's talk about the people who are going to execute me. None of the old religions were good enough for them. They're so fanatical they've created their own religion. They're their own high priests and priestesses, their own gods and goddesses. Does their religion encourage its members to practice tolerance? <laughs> Hardly. I'll tell you something else. I know it's a capital crime to say this, but it obviously doesn't matter anymore. I would have destroyed the gods and goddesses themselves if I could have. But they protect themselves far too well. I had to content myself with destroying their... mouthpieces. You know why it's a capital crime to do what I did? Because the gods and goddesses know they couldn't stay in power and impose their religion on us if they were without their mouthpieces, their agents of propaganda. I was there at his execution. I even remember the words of the executioner. Daniel Ashburn, you've been convicted of treason in that you deliberately rendered inoperable an unspecified number of enlightenment devices though not less than 247 between the 12th of March and the 7th of August of this year. You have been sentenced to die by lethal injection. Have you any last words before I carry out the sentence? Ashburn didn't, and that was that. Of course, his execution was broadcast into every home via the Enlightenment device. Each residence is required, by law, to have. Once again... I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Visionaries by Edward T. May Prisoners by Edward T. May Recitation and audio design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.